long as it's fun, you should do it. Yeah. Fun is definitely a priority for us. I think we should always kind of have this element of fun in our life and not in a kind of forcibly fun way but that can be just simple little moments within life but it's very easy throughout your day to get into the kind of long list of things that you have to do and forget why you want to do those things I think most of the time everybody wants to do something because they feel it's going to make them happy whatever that is Welcome to Priorities the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach, Lily Silverton. And each week I'll be asking a new interviewee to open up about the things that are important and unimportant to them. What takes first place in their life, what they couldn't care less about, and what they'd like to work on a little bit more. Will you agree with their priorities? Will they make you reevaluate your own? Let's find out. My guests today are artistic duo and husband and wife, Walter and Zoniel. Known for their multidisciplinary and socially engaging work, Walter and Zoniel use the tools of nature, surrealism, reflection and amusement to create exceptionally unique installations and artworks. Their visually and mentally inspirational work has been shown at Tate Britain, Somerset House, Freeze London and Miami Basel. Their works have been acquired by the National Art Collection and the National Portrait Gallery and their thoughtful and idiosyncratic approach to art has led to collaborations with fashion giants, including Paul Smith and Matches Fashion. Welcome, Walter and Zonia. Hi. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) How are you two doing today? Where are you at on a scale of one to ten? Zonia, you go first. A scale of one to ten. You put me in numerical order. Well, I'd have to say a solid 10, just a standard 10. I'd like yeah. to go from there. So now it's a standard 17, yeah. Um, <laughs> also, like, the numbers a lot better than I do, as you know, but um, I am partial to changing that scale. So I am a good solid 88, so I went for a big run, and now I'm 18, apart from that, I'm good. Yeah. So, Neil, you are first number 10. Woo! Yeah. Why are you going to set <laughs> you win. Being based does help, Lily. You know, oh. but, um, as a as a basis. It's a good basis. All right, we're going to jump straight into your first priority, which is kind of your big priority. So, explain to me your priorities. Your priority. Okay, so big um, surprise. Art, yeah. <laughs> Making art is definitely. Uh, making art is our life it is kind of like our our child our parent our food uh, our sustenance (laughs) yeah all of those things and so all of our priorities are kind of filtered through that in as much as um you you were talking about kind of thinking about three specific priorities Mm. and when which is good to kind of focus our minds and think of it in that way and I think the first one is being inspired. And that may sound like a funny thing to be a priority, but I think there's kind of a state of mind that you can put yourself in to recognize inspiration in your life. And that doesn't mean you have to always be bouncing off the walls inspired. Um, sometimes that inspiration is inspired to just lie in bed all day. That could be inspiration as well as feeling inspired to go for a walk or feeling inspired to create a piece of art for us. Yeah, for me, I think it's 
I think it's the ability to take inspiration and manifest it into reality. So it's a matter of lots of people are inspired, lots of people have dreams, but there's differences between being able to capture the, the little slippery bodies and like whack them into reality, you know, and actually make something in this world. <laughs> that, that's a priority for me. <laughs> I am little slightly wiggly, wiggly ideas all the time. And I carve them, carve them into reality. <laughs> Wrestling with inspiration. Okay, so we've gone from being ideas. inspired to yeah. authority. Um, wrestling our ideas as well as being wrestling here. ideas, wrestling them into into production. Yeah, I kind of see that as uh, putting your inspiration in context so that you have the environment that is nurturing to be able to take that inspiration and create something into reality. Whether that's having the things that you need, the tools that you need around you to be able to capture that moment, capture that inspiration, or um, being able recognizing it in the first state as a as an inspiration, and also, I mean, we're quite lucky because we live in this bubble of the two of us, and so when we have ideas at the very first point of inspiration, it's important not to just kind of blow them all out and. And if you let ideas out too soon, then it's quite easy for other people to kind of pee all over them a little bit, you know, or just maybe not be as inspired as you are, or maybe feel not understand those ideas and, and certainly not necessarily have the same feelings that you have about them. And so within the two of us, we kind of create this environment of nurturing those ideas. And so you try when one of us comes up with an idea before the other one's quite caught up to kind of give that state of mind um, a, a space to be able to kind of uh, hear that and take it to expanding the idea further. I think the other part of our inspiration, the other part of our priority is definitely having fun. Walter likes to sing it. I often like to sing it also. It's like a bell. Have we talked about that just rang fun actually thank you that's a good yeah, idea if it's not fun why the f are you doing it fun is definitely a priority for us um i think everything you we should always kind of have this element of fun in our life and not in a kind of forcibly fun way but that can be just simple little moments within life but it's very easy throughout your day to get into the kind of long list of things that you have to do and um, forget why you want to do those things. And I think most of the time, everybody wants to do something because they feel it's going to make them happy. Whatever that is, even if that's washing up, you think, oh my God, I've done the washing up. At least the washing up will be done and I'll be happier. Sorry, that was blossom. That's blossom jumping off. Is that okay? okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Please. She's gone to do the washing up. Thank you, blossom. That wasn't yeah. a hint. Yeah. Um, so I think that's it. That yeah, the difference is like I think a lot of people get caught into the very simple cycle of thinking that financial benefit or money will make their life happier or fun, and instead of just having fun with what they're waking up. That is true. I will agree and disagree, of course. <laughs> um, and as much as making money could well make people happy, um, but I think what you make yeah, people work to make money because they want to have fun with the money they get rather than having fun at work. Yes, sorry. Should we just wait till she's... Come on, Blossy. Up you come. I think this is like the multiple times I've spoken about Dr. Zeus during this podcast, but it comes up a lot because I read it to Dolly a lot. Do you know the poem, It's Fun to Have Fun, if you know, but you have to have 
you have to know how. <laughs> oh my God, I don't trust 100%. I am going to get a tap of that on my chest. I will, send it, I will send it to you later. It is brilliant. It's Cat in the Hat. By Lily Silverton underneath. Honoured in honour of Lily and Dolly, in honour of Dolly as well. Um, I think the element of having fun is so important. Um, and I think a lot of people think fun is flippant. Yeah, it's like, throw away. It's kind of I can't like, have fun now. I'm supposed yeah. to be doing things. It's but serious. But we work. It's quite often the case we work so hard for things so that we kind of put off the fun. And you can we just have, have fun straight away. Fun as well, like, oh, if I do work really hard, I'll have this holiday in six months' time, and that'll be really fun. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. So finding the fun in those everyday moments. I mean, there's things we're very fortunate to live by the sea, as you know, and um, there's places that we go daily that I just find so uplifting and do a little dance, you know, have a little wave at the sea. And that fun can be in any given moment. There's nothing, there's nothing that should postpone your fun, even if you're in the most serious moments in life that element of uplifting yourself or just kind of focusing for a second within yourself and feeling some some way of, of lightening your your feelings in that moment will connect you to yourself. What do you say to people who don't find it so easy to access that sense of fun or lightness, especially when they're going through something difficult? Well, obviously all of us um, can only access something that's kind of similar to where we're at at any given moment like if we're in the middle of feeling super angry for instance then the idea of just somebody going like have fun in your face is just gonna make you want to hit them so I think in those moments it's like kind of trying to find the next step up from where you're at so you know and wherever you are on that scale like if you're feeling super depressed then feeling angry feels quite fun because you're actually and recognizing those yeah, transitions it's, it's recognizing i think that's the main problem is it's very hard if you're in a mindset not to recognize anything outside of that and people, some people have been in that for weeks for months for years and it's very hard i think for these sorts of people you have to then just introduce a very simple idea just a one targeted simple idea maybe you know yeah and i think the key to that idea is is recognizing where you're at and just looking for any form of alleviation of your mood Mm. And that could be from the lowest chasms of our feeling, feeling kind of like you don't want to do anything, feeling really desperate, feeling really depressed. Then you can feel the next level up from that. Which And to, if you recognize that and feel, and you can recognize that you have the capability to kind of allow your thoughts to go in that process, then you can feel like slightly more of a sense of control over your thought patterns. You can feel a sense of kind of alleviation and going from say depression to anger actually is a very massive shift. We're not in condoning anger change. here. Just, 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 I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's really easy to disanger. If you're going from like being super happy to being angry, then that's probably not the best direction to go in. But if you're going from feeling depressed to feeling angry, that is progression within yourself and, and lots of people very lots easily. Nice you. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. You can't live your life for everybody around you. Mm. You know, it's easy to be like, oh, we don't want someone to be angry around us. But 
if your friends acknowledge that that's a good thing, then if I see somebody who is sad and then they got angry, it's like, great, be flipping angry. At least you've got some energy, you've got some movement. And then there's another step past that. You don't want to stay in anger. I'm just being honest about how you feel as well. Yeah, I think most people, I think the idea of change is, uh, is, is not a very good one. So I think uh, a good analogy would be like for anyone who's ever done any form of exercise, there is all the time you are snuggled in bed. There is no way in hell uh, you want to get out of that bed or bed. You're like, oh, and there's no way you want to do that exercise. But you get out and you do it. And the exercise is amazing. I was going to say F word. It's amazing. And you enjoy it. And you're in the moment and you're living it. But the, so the, so the, the depressive is the kind of person in bed, isn't it? It's just trying to access. You know, they know that the, the exercise is good and it's going to be fun. But just to actually doing something when you don't actually feel like it because we all feel better, you know, going for a walk, you might not feel like it, but just do it anyway. Go, you know, try growing vegetables. <laughs> yeah, well, do it. that's the same thing. It's kind of going to the next step. I think that's it. And if you're happy and you're going to that step, but also kind of like acknowledging your happiness and like recognising the things that make you feel good. Yeah, because each of us are individuals. Each, each of us find happiness in different things. You know, we're not all robots. So, we're not all robots no no, no. we are not, not all robots <laughs> glad, we est- glad we established that one uh what <laughs> what's um what are some of the things that bring you guys joy what are some of the daily routines that you have running and swimming in the sea yeah vegetables cycling cycling doing things like that a physical meditating practice every single morning um i mean to me meditation is like taking a shower for your brain or brushing your teeth it's like if you don't do it you feel a bit icky but if you do do it you definitely know you've done it and you're like i'm ready sponsored by colgate (laughs) (laughs) we kind of win yeah but it is like brushing your teeth your mind Okay, silly boots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that silly. We can't have that much. Sorry, um, I'm just censoring the fun level here. There's, there's so, so many things. I like, one of my favourite things, obviously, before the current environment we're in, uh, was wherever we are, whatever city we're in or visiting places. I like getting really early, like five in the morning, because I naturally wake up that early anyway. And uh, putting on some music and walking around the streets, and there's no one else around apart from street cleaners and, you know, that is that is possibly one of my favourite joys. What do you listen to? I listen to Max Richter. Um, oh yeah, pretty that awesome boy. soundtrack. It is. Yeah, if you ever want to be inspired? I come to Max Richter, walk some empty streets of the city, and you're like, yes, I am going to create. <laughs> I like looking at the sea. We go jump in the sea quite a lot, and I think looking at the sea, just there's a spot down here in Hastings, Rockenau, yeah. and. We went there this morning and it's just every single time I look at it, it makes my heart just really expand. And I just can't get over how exciting it is looking at the spot. And I said this morning, I was like, can I just live here? Do you think I could just live here in a tent? Well, it was kind of... I said, you'd be all right if you had 15 cats with you and people would probably leave you alone. (laughs) Interesting. Um, I think I could train Blossom to just meet people for me. Anyone coming down... (laughs) same vibes anyway so I think kind of nature as a whole that's kind of a thing and dancing I mean sometimes obviously we have had some dances together Lily in the past and you are a professionally trained dancer (laughs) but um even we can forget 
the power of dance sometimes um and this is a podcast but i wish everybody could see lily's uh in inverted commas uncle dance crazy uncle in the corner (laughs) but um yeah I think dancing is, it's like anything that kind of gets you moving, like Walter's saying, kind of running. Running is, yeah, food for the soul. Yeah. But dancing, if running's food for the soul, what's dancing then? It's food for, it's food for your groins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird that she's definitely going to have to edit it out. Um, <laughs> definitely, definitely staying in. So, yeah, you've got a really long history with meditation as well, which you've brought into your work. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, Well, it's funny because obviously when we're in the middle of living our lives, it's really odd to take a perspective of it. But meditation at this present moment is having um, quite a heyday, isn't it? Um, And I mean, I I was brought up going to kind of different Buddhist monasteries as well as with Roman Catholicism through my grandmother. And um uh so I learned to meditate as a child my mother taught me to meditate and then I went to teaching to different Buddhist teachers but I didn't really kind of think of it like that at the time it was quite uh quite a different way of perceiving it and then when I was a teenager I went straight from a rave to a monastery and uh became a nun Buddhist nun for a while and uh effectively I feel like that was almost like my equivalent of going to university at that point in time because all the things that that was a very immersive way of uh taking meditation I guess to a different sort of stage and I spent just over three years being in monastery studying different kind of Buddhist arts it was Buddhist monastery by the way and um yeah and then it's it's just part of my everyday life it is something that I just feel like I said you know it's like brushing your teeth or having a shower it is something that is so precious in that context. And I was really kind of fascinated with um, uh, when I first went to Thailand, actually, which is a different type of Buddhism there, but the, it was quite standard to be able to take robes for a year there. And when I took robes, it was here in the UK, in a, uh, in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the UK. And it was the first time you were able to take robes for a year. And that made it kind of incredibly accessible in a way. And that's sort of, I opened it up to the Western world in lots of ways because I don't think there's many people that would be prepared to just sort of relinquish everything and think, I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life. Um, But it's quite a standard thing in Thailand to take robes for a year. And it's quite often, I think, think, correct me if I'm wrong, that the kind of firstborn of lots of families will go and do that. And that's almost like kind of, part and parcel of uh coming of age and when I studied as a nun then I really thought this was like the most precious teaching that I was given in all of my education and I always thought kind of that would be something that would be super valuable that if there's one thing that could be um taught in schools it would be that because that really felt to me like a tool for dealing with your emotions mm. more than anything and like what do you deal with every single day of your life if not your emotions well, it's something that's sadly lacking in western education i think is like we get taught many many things in school but we don't get taught how to deal with emotions kind of with the inner self which i think could I think everyone could do with you know yeah timeless meditation think, and alternate you know i think mm. a lot of Coming more into it's it's more into public domain and people are kind of having much more of a relationship with meditation 
And then he said medication then. <laughs> and medication. <laughs> Meditation is what you need. Yes. Um, you want to be the best. To be the best. Meditation is what you need. Okay. <laughs> I think more and more schools do do teach it. I definitely see that around. Yeah. Which is a huge difference and are starting to realise the huge importance of teaching people to understand their emotions and accept their emotions. Yeah. Well, a good friend of ours set up a a thing um, about mindfulness where she teaches just kids and they'll go and teach... um, I think they teach massage, like group massage. They all go in a kind of circle or something, and like gently massage each other's shoulders, and and then they um, they do kind of like a group meditation for for little children. She's a primary school teacher, and uh, and I thought, well, that's kind of quite an eye opener to see that that's something that's making its way into primary schools. Yeah. Mm, that's so lovely. We'll link to that in the show notes. You give me the the name, yeah. and I can link her in. Yeah, and we did we did a series of them. Uh, of- portrait gallery last year which was quite interesting to take people out of their moment and wrapping them up and blindfolding them and as a kind of art performance stroke meditation um yeah it was a wonderful experience yeah so it was i did it it was a wonderful experience (laughs) a heavily pregnant lily at the time i think you wrapped her to a chair much to my <laughs> but yeah, so we developed this practice, this art meditation practice, which was about because we're really firm believers in art being for everybody, being accessible. So our first kind of step into that was making public artworks. So they were in the domain where everybody could access them. And um and then we were looking at a different way of making art accessible. Yeah. And that's when we decided to use meditation in this format because I think one of the blocks to art that people have is thinking that it's not for them because it comes from the only access points that are academic. And even as simple as having like the little sign next to an artwork that tells you what it's about. In some ways that's great, but in other ways it's like you can just make your own connection with this piece of art. You don't have to be validated by anything else. And so we created these art meditations, which you experienced in the National Portrait Gallery, um, where we do things like we have people lying on the floor in the gallery and then swaddling them in our... blankets and covering their eyes and things that kind of just would take you out of what you'd normally do in that space yeah and then mentally and then mentally guiding them through we've got kind of four different um types of meditations that we've now developed in doing that and um and that has been a real eye-opener for other people and for us as well like we did one session with actually people who worked at the gallery so curators this experience they've never had before with artworks that they've been with yeah. for years, like, you know, 20 years. Because <laughs> I just assumed everybody, if you work somewhere, you'd definitely just lie on the floor for a minute because you've got that access. But yeah, that's, that's just the way our brains work. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they said that was really nice to kind of do this, just even that act of, like, lying down. Yeah, which is something... I think it, I think it was good, the idea is good for the public as well because a lot of big institutions, uh, Portrait Gallery and Tate, they have these, you know, now, I can't remember how many seconds it is, but there's a there's a known figure within the arts world of how long the average person looks at a piece of a little piece of card, reads the information, stands and looks between. I think you know, don't quote me on this, but it's like 15 seconds or 30 seconds. You look at the painting, then you move on. You read the next card. You look at the painting for the next 30 seconds, then you move on. And that's and it's not really giving justice to yourself or to the piece of work. So I think we're, we're trying to 
think of ways in which to, you know, change that relationship. To change that relationship and to kind of like create your own connection. I mean, I think art is something that you decide what your connection is to something. I mean, all of our artwork is about making a connection through joy. And so we try and present circumstances or outcomes that are joyous in some way, because I think that joy has this tremendous power to connect. And, um, and if you can kind of embody a sense of joy in yourself when you're being part in some, of something or if you're looking at something, then, um, then that becomes yours. You know, that, that sentiment, yeah, that sure. feeling, that sense of joyousness, it's like whatever you're looking at, that's become your experience and nobody can take away from that. Nobody can like reframe that. You, only you can say what your relationship to that piece of art is. And that's important for people to know and for them, for more people to be able to make that relationship with art because, you know, it's up to you how you relate to a piece of art. You don't have to be able to write an academic paper on it. I mean, if you can, then that's lovely. You can do that. But if you can't or if you don't want to, if you're not interested in that, you can just enjoy the colour of it. You can enjoy how it makes you feel. But well, years ago, we used to go to the Rothko room and take, do you remember? Yes. And uh, there, there was a little small room and it had Rothko's on every wall. So it was like a uh, rectangle. So it's four of them. It was very powerful. So we used to just, the, the years and years ago, like just after being students, stand in there and spin in circles. It was wonderful. Yeah. Like a kaleidoscope of Rothko. Yeah, just like, I stand in a gallery and spin in a circle or lie yeah. on the floor. Yeah. No one's going to stop you. And if they do, and you'd be like, I'm just a piece of art, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Rothko room's one of my favourite rooms of any gallery in the world oh it's lovely it's really lovely i think that well that's it i mean it's one next time you go spin in a circle have you spun round yeah. in it really? never spun round in it i will definitely <laughs> spin round in it next time many years now that never. is our challenge to you i think what you said about spending a very brief amount of time whatever it is in front of each piece and then moving on is quite big and one of the things is that there's so much art out there now and some of the galleries to get around them properly would take days if you really spent time. How do you guys feel? Do you get art fatigue in the work that you do? Not me. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, because we're focused on having fun. I think that's it. Like you, it depends. You don't have to see every single piece of art. I mean, I guess what you could do is just stand in the centre of a room and just like gently glance around and see what, calls you like which thing in that room makes you want to actually go up to it or go up to it and stand there in front of it for longer than it feels comfortable for everybody around you so the people are kind of nuzzling up next <laughs> yeah. to you like, <laughs> your position now just wait till they pass by and once that i know you'd think that it's lily um and once that's happened you'll start to relax in a different way it's like when you go to a cafe and you stay there for longer than you've had like six drinks. And you're like, hmm. I always like to do this in pretty much any context, actually. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I'm not socially aware. I'll just stand there and I'm oblivious to people trying to move me out of the way. Yeah, so it doesn't work the same for you. But other people are kind of conscious of other people. And there's kind of social, you know, there's social governance of that situation, isn't there? So if you stay there for a bit longer and just, just own that space for a minute, then I think, you know, you don't have to take in everything and you don't have to, like, know everything about everything. You can just, just go. Sometimes the least, the least, you know, the least, you know, the less you know, the better. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's interesting, mm. true. Um, well, yeah. It inspires you, then find out more about it. But I think 
I firmly believe you should just feel a connection to music work and look at it, whatever it is you get out of it, whatever story you tell yourself and then walk away. You might not even need to know the artist if yeah. you want to. Um, see where we your inspiration takes you. Yeah, we certainly don't make art for people to then know everything about our lives and why we did it and everything else. I certainly don't. And I assume yeah. most artists that have made a painting or a sculpture just made it to make an impression on someone. That's all there is well, to do. I've, I literally cannot speak for every artist and why they've created <laughs> I love that you can. I can totally. Of course you can. Of course you can. Because you are Walter. And that is what I you can't do. imagine like as, as Pierre say, just having a painting. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you know what? Years from now, people are going to just look at this painting and they'll want to know my life history and where I went to school. And oh, yeah, wait, I won't make the thing where I went to school. I had a bit well, of they weren't creating yeah. it like that. Of course actually. not. They're creating for an impression. Give someone a sense of, you well, know, maybe, escapism. but even between the two of us, we create for different reasons. I mean, Walter's like a man of le- legacy. This will last past I'm me. Also, and I'm just like, let's have some fun now. I'm also right connected now. to like the reaction of people. I think uh, when you make a public performance, a big public installation, and people, and you can watch people and they don't know that you're the artist. That's uh, the real addiction to see people's this moment, this, this momentary expression that can't be fake, this kind of wonder that goes on people's faces. Children are better than adults, but it, yeah, an adult's face to just drop into one that is like crack cocaine. Sorry, I shouldn't say but yeah. I love sleep. Seriously, it's one of my biggest priorities and I'm a different and much improved person when I get my full eight hours. So I'm incredibly excited that this season of priorities is sponsored by Sleep Siren, an independent lifestyle brand fueled by a passion for health, wellness, and great sleep. Sleep Siren brings together science, education, and luxurious products to offer meaningful support to busy people who could sleep a little or a lot better. As the mother of a toddler and having suffered from insomnia on and off my entire life, I know firsthand how helpful Sleep Siren can be at identifying and covering your sleep needs. Whether you're looking to read an expert article on the latest sleep science, treat yourself to some insanely soft silk pajamas, or simply find a luxurious eye mask, Sleep Siren have everything you need to sleep well tonight. If you would like to improve your sleep, I'd love for you to have the same experience as me with Sleep Siren. So they're offering 20% off with the code PRIORITY20. Check them out on www.sleepsiren.com. Thank you to Sleep Siren. Nutrition is a priority for me, and I know that the more plants I eat, the better I feel. However, with a busy life, I, like you I'm sure, don't always manage to get my daily quota of greens. So I'm very happy that this season of Priorities is sponsored by Foga, a new brand that makes plant shakes, pre-portioned blends, a freeze-dried fruit and veg that you simply shake up with water or milk to create a restaurant standard smoothie at home. I'm not really into protein shakes or powders. However, these are genuinely amazing. They're so easy and delicious. Right now, I'm digging the ginger and greens combination, and my daughter is a big fan of berries and cinnamon. They contain zero extra sugars or chemicals, through freeze-drying have all the nutrients locked in, and they're whole plant, meaning they have all the fibre of fresh fruit and veg. It's really the lazy person's dream. If you're looking to easily and affordably prioritise your nourishment, then I'd love to find out if you enjoy Foga as much as I do. They're offering £5 off your first box with the code PRIORITIES. Check them out on www.foga.co. That's F-O-G-A. Thank you to Foga. Tell us about um, the piece you did. You've got the jellyfish behind you. Tell us about the jellyfish piece. 
and the first time you did it in Liverpool. So yeah, so that was time. our first um, piece of public art, effectively. Mm. And um, there was um, funded by a gallery, not funded by kind of a public art body, because we were so, we really, really wanted to do, to make our art accessible. So we wanted to make something that was wondrous, that was in an environment that anyone could come across. And we made this work in um, Liverpool, in Yeah which at the time was classified as the poorest borough in possibly the whole of the EU, um, but definitely the UK. And, and, you know, I'm not a fan of statistics, to be honest, but that really was interpreted quite easily if you went around Toxic because only one in every 10 houses was occupied. So um, it had a very bad reputation since, since 35 years also, ago. geographically speaking, for those who have been to Liverpool, within 10 minutes walk, you can be in a city centre and literally go across a little... Well, that was the two-lane junction. Yeah. Uh, dual carriageway. Dual you carriage. can't cross the dual carriageway, you're into that, what's that lovely, the Georgian quarter? Right? Yeah. Like, literally. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> mate. Um, yeah, you just go across the road. So it's not the far. It's not like you're talking miles away. So this is kind of like something that's become a theme in our work going forward of working in these spaces that are so close to city centres. And also it's very close to big art fairs. So yeah. This uh, Liverpool Biennial happens every two years. There's a massive art fair and people from all over Europe, I mean, curators, critics come and descend upon the city to see these installations. So the, the crux of the project was to create something in this poorest neighbourhood over here that doesn't get any funding, doesn't get any art, any real love put into it. And we give it to the people. So a couple of weeks before the art fair's even existing, we secretly installed this huge giant tank of jellyfish behind a roller shutter in an old abandoned warehouse. And so as, as the sun sets, the, the shutter goes up by itself. And then there's, there's just live jellyfish here in the middle of this desolate row. So the first night, three people discover it and they're like, what WTF? They basically take a picture, take a selfie, and they're like, call someone up and go, there's a giant jank of jellyfish down, what, I can't remember the name of the road, but yeah. down this road. And so obviously by the third night, there was like 20, 30 people. By the end of the week, there was 150 people, actually it was raining, it was really lovely, just to stand at the other side of the street and see all these people with umbrellas in the rain, waiting for the shutter to open up, and to see these jellyfish. They didn't know it was a piece of art, they didn't know anything about it, and then... The art fair happened. Yeah. We advertised it as a piece of art, and all the curators and critics had to then come to this poor neighbourhood and mingle with all of the local inhabitants who then owned it and loved it. Um, yes. So that was like there were three sort of stages that we were aiming to happen. It was kind of almost part social experiment, I guess, in that respect. Whereas the first stage being that you could just discover it for yourself. You don't know what it is. It could be a piece of artwork. You could be like, is an aquarium opening here? I don't know. Um, and the second stage would be that somebody would tell you about that. So you're going there because someone's told you there's something sort of fantastical there. And then the third stage would be that you're coming there to visit it as a piece of art because you know it's a piece of art and you know something about it. And all three of those stages could and did happen at the same time where you'd have people, you know, discovering it and then there's an art critic there and someone around the corner is telling them what the yeah. work's about. There was a lovely, like, I can't remember where she was from. Just making was, up she was from, like, Sweden or somewhere, this art critic. And right next to her, I can't do a Liverpudlian accent, was a guy, guy with his arm around her telling her all about it. It was, like, literally... And what was even better amazing. was that he's just making up the story about it. Yeah, had had, <laughs> which was amazing. And as an artist, that is the highest accolade you can have. So just stand there and watch people's sense of joy, fun, wonderment, 
just happening and that is a gift that you have given in the world that's yeah. it you know so that, to is us, that was yes that was utterly addictive so we also filmed through from inside the tanks and then we live streamed <laughs> that whilst the biennial was on in that london into like the massive sort of front of a gallery and it was quite fascinating to see you know what can be fantastical in one space versus being fantastical in london in Mayfair, which you know there are there are whole window displays so that obviously cost a million pounds to make. So, yeah, so from that side, you could see the street scene looking through the jellyfish. So you could see people coming up and it would be like giant faces coming up to it. So that was the, our very first kind of step into making public artwork and making something which uh, we wanted people to be able to connect in this kind of wondrous way, this kind of sense of surrealism and joy. And it was addictive, yeah. as well said. Very slight. We repeated it in Miami. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It was that addictive. Really saw it in Miami. Miami Basel. Like, really was there. Yeah. Um, and then we've gone on to do things like where we covered entire galleries. We've built giant catapults to fly paint outside of galleries, painted beaches, multicolored, all sorts of things. The idea is just to capture people's attention that aren't necessarily art lovers or informed about art, but just to give them this kind of gift, this sense of wonderment, and inspire them, hopefully. Yeah, I think that kind of, I mean, inspiration, just creating a a moment or a circumstance that you could make kind of a level access point. Like Walter was saying with the with the paint. So we gave people, we asked people three questions, and we posed them as yes or no questions, which none of them have yes or no answers. For instance, they were like, "Do you have to be an artist to make art?" Because we put them in that situation where they say yes or no, independent on their answer, we give them a, a, a balloon filled with coloured paint, and that coloured paint would represent their answer. And they didn't know that until they threw it at the building. And then that was thrown at a building explosion, like the whole thing was just magnificently colourful. And then that turns into this sort of debate, um, this abstract representation of a debate. People start debating in the queue while they're waiting to have a go. They'll be like, Ooh. and then people's kids are even kids better because people are like, just be an artist make art. No, everybody wanted to say no for a little while. And then a kid would be like, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes, you have to be an artist to make art. And they'd be, <laughs> and their parents would go, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, do you have your answer? And they're kind of second guessing. It's like there is no right or wrong answer. And then they'd give a reason for their answer because obviously that was meant as a joy to debate. Anyway, we can waffle on about this though. So guide us Lily. <laughs> I love hearing I love hearing about the pieces that you've created tell us about the one you did in Scotland go on oh the darkest woods in the world the darkest woods in the world oh, that's, yes. that's a very bad Scottish accent that is no a good accent Scottish accent <laughs> I think Walter's not allowed to do accents on the podcast <laughs> uh, the worst thing is I only have to hang out with someone with an accent for about five minutes and my brain just tries to do it and it's so embarrassing because I'm not even aware that I'm doing it it's like a weird sketch show <laughs> a really bad one um, everybody knows somebody like you Walter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where is it that's the problem um, they so, are though yeah. it's great um, so yeah we were in Scotland for a year making a piece of art Mm-hmm. we had a house in this wonderful place in the middle of the woods middle of nowhere and someone told us informed us that the, the really dark spot in the world uh was there one of the darkest the darkest woods in the world um so we went to discover it for ourselves and it was truly dark <laughs> no surprises you couldn't see a hand in front of your face absolutely terrifying yeah it's quite fascinating for photographically because mm. obviously you could try and take an image and obviously some people take night photography yeah 
and um, you open up the shutter and after an hour or two you get exposure there is light yeah so sometimes when we think it's dark mm. if you do have this extended exposure then you'll see something in the light because there's light present that our eyes can't see but yeah. in this context there was none of that there was no so, moonlight so, so or starlight the tree you coverage could literally and, yeah. just take a photo for an hour and nothing will come out so it's like being inside a cave mm. effectively anyway so we had these we had been living in London and in London there were lots of things that people put on the street as you know that normally last for like five minutes and it's a wonderful sense of natural recycling in that way and we kept finding chairs and we had found all of these wooden chairs which all looked beautiful but as soon as you tried to sit on them you found out why they were on the street because they were broken in the way and so when we found out this was the darkest place in the world this kind of idea came together we, we went and got the chairs and we hiked into the middle of the woods. Through the snow. <laughs> My sound guy. Um, okay. <laughs> we went into the woods in the daylight. Cause, uh, and then we kind of placed the chairs we wanted to do, and then we'd leave ourselves a trail so coming back out. into little arrows and then make little arrows in the snow with our feet. Yeah, Walter thought he was in like Red Riding Hood or something. Because well, um, at night you, you came back and you couldn't see it. Yeah, it's very, very easy to As soon to as you moved lost. the torch, it was like, the darkness came to you. It wasn't like you moved a torch over there. It felt like the darkness came and touched your shoulder. It was <laughs> very enveloping. I yeah. thought it was quite funny because Walter was like, you know, this is where like serial killers hang out. And I was like, we're definitely the people who look crazy in this situation. Yeah, both in so overalls. If yeah. anyone sees us in the woods, they're going to be running, not us. Setting fire to chairs. Oh, yeah. So that's what we did. So we placed the chairs and then we set fire to them. We hiked back in the dark of the moon, in the dark of the woods. And there was no light. We set fire to the chairs. And so the only light that made the image that we created photographically was the light of the chair letting go, releasing its own energy and becoming something else. And then we put them out. Watching the snow, put them on. And you're not going to do sound effect for that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then we got the pieces of wood and chopped up. <laughs> and then we got a giant uh, wood chipper. Yeah, we And then put it in that. And it goes... <laughs> uh, it's like you're there, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so we had the wood chipper, and that made a kind of pulpy, mushy uh, no, then we sawdust. Pulped, and we yeah, and then we put them in a big giant blender, blender, and then boiled it slowly on and off for, for months. For months, basically. And we made paper out of the chair. What was left of the chair? And then we printed the image of itself onto itself. So therefore the chair became the image. And yeah, so what you're looking at is literally the physical contents of the photographic image that's printed on top of it. And unfortunately you can't see this. <laughs> so have a look online. <laughs> you have to visualise it. Yeah, that's a fun story. So a lot of our work has these stories too, but then it's kind of funny after we just you know extolled the virtues of just looking at an artwork and not needing that story i don't think you i think your work should speak for itself yeah. and your connection should be your own personal connection but we do obviously because of the way that we make our work we do get asked to tell these stories a lot nothing to do 100 percent your sound effects <laughs> concepts are really quite disappointing it's the sound effects that make it <laughs> people are going to ask you I mean I love I know these stories and I love hearing them over and over again because you have this incredible way of working where you you know you, you bring everything around in a circle every time so often yeah. 
even when you'll be talking about a work, I'll be like, where are they going? What's going on? Why are we at this place? And then suddenly at the end, you're like, oh, and then we link back to this. And there's this full circle of using the most incredible materials to bring something background. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, well, I think well, everything is essentially... Were you there when we you made sweat portraits from your face? Sweat yeah. Yeah. yeah, you made one of my face. Yeah, yeah, when we made... Uh, portraits of people using Obviously, their own sweat there so is a disclaimer here Lily doesn't sweat just so <laughs> I don't want to like you know make people think that Lily is not a goddess she doesn't sweat but somehow we managed to extract some salt from her face that was it. especially for the Tate Gallery especially <laughs> no yeah well that's it I think um all of our I mean, we kind of bounce ideas around between the two of us and we'll have an idea and we'll get hooked into that route of inspiration. But things, it's, it's like a mathematical equation in our minds, really. And different elements get added and subtracted until it reaches that balance, which is like the circle that you're talking about. And everything has to have a conceptual reason for being there. All the processes that we use have to have a conceptual reason for us to want to make it, really. And so consequently, it does go around in that sort of cyclic nature that you're talking about. What are you working on right now? Well, for the last seven months, we've been working on a simple act of wonder, which is um, and which it's an installation. It's a public installation. It's an exhibition. It's like a massive project that we kind of hit the ground running with it. It was a, a commission that was awarded to us in January. And it was it like, be ready for me. really short turnaround, start immediately. And we were in a really good point where we had these two months where we were just about to start doing another installation in the July. National Trust. And uh, so we're like, yeah, awesome. We've got this time. We can start straight away. And um, we started with that energy. And seven months later, that, that pace has not <laughs> slowed. It's been like locked out. And it's like, yeah, still going at the same pace still going and um yeah so that has been it got a bit bigger and then a bit more bigger and then a bit more bigger like everybody has found I guess in this context it's something it's about the work itself having a shake so the work itself it centers around connection the concepts of connection human connection um community uh how communities work together and the act of storytelling and how that the way that we sort of interpreted that with storytelling, how that works on a daily basis in our lives and how the way that we frame our stories can, you know, like kind of really impact the way that we relate to the world or the way that the world relates to certain areas. And that's where we, we, the project itself is in Brighton and it's about connecting these two spaces, suburb, which um, had had um, certain elements of its... Well, it's stigma, it's, you know, a place for more than we've ever been and... It was uh, built just after the war, wasn't it? Or yeah, started the before the second war. Oh, after, just, after, just after the first war. After the first war, yes. <laughs> before the second war. Um, but it's, uh, One of those wars. Geographically, it's, uh, it's like a little housing space, so there's a lot of uniformity to it. Um, and it's never had any arts funding. And in fact, we went to interview people for months beforehand. Um, very lucky Which is, yeah, we've never done before, which is interesting. And, and a lot of people were complaining how they, there are lots of other art things that go on in Brian and they, they've never had any of these things happen to them. Um, so instantly we were like, yeah, we're going to come and paint your houses then, basically. Um, and we just had this vision of taking, because you never see these kind of 
uh, what are they, 30s, 40s kind of council houses. We all know them all across the country. We're sure how fun it would be just to kind of inject some colour and humour and fun and joy into this. Yeah, I mean, colour, humour and joy, fun, those are all things that we would like to connect with every day anyway and kind of put in our work. But I think maybe to describe it a little bit more, being as this is not a visual medium. Check um, it out on the website. <laughs> but just to kind of describe, I mean, it's the sort of anybody who's been to any sort of um, British housing estate from like the 1930s to 1950s, it's a very typical type of form of housing. It's like red brick and render. And um, it's a sort of space that it has, like the whole area has a certain look to it. But it's on the outskirts of Brighton. And that was about connecting to um, the centre of Brighton. And Brighton is kind of synonymous with colourfulness and uh, being a seaside city and uh, the fact that so much colour in all the Georgian houses that's in the centre of the city. It's synonymous with creativity and with uh, acceptability. And it's something that kind of jarred with this relationship with uh, the suburb we are working in, Horsham Bevendine. And uh, so for the first time, ever we kind of turned our process the other way around and we started with this research process that involved the community rather than us making a piece of work putting it in a community and then then having this interaction um so we went and interviewed like hundreds of people and uh that was absolutely fascinating because we love tea and Walter loves biscuits and um (laughs) being an artist is literally like so much people let you into their house and tell you their entire life story and they feed you it is amazing we actually i want a badge you know like an fbi badge all right i'm an artist yes you don't need that badge (laughs) you've got me i'll get you in (laughs) it's amazing i love it's a wonderful because everybody has wonderful stories every single person they might not think their stories are wonderful, but it's, it's an honour to be able to take these stories and put them up on a pedestal for the world to see. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. So this whole project, the first element was kind of collating these elements of stories and using them as a point of inspiration to be able to, because it's a really big project that encompasses, you know, public artwork, things that were going to be interactive. The aim was to connect these two parts of the city. There's and a series of portraits, the buildings are painted, and then there's a huge... Uh, grass space let's say it's like a, a green which is uh, the houses are built around uh, as you come into the estate called the avenue and this green is what 750 meters maybe it's three quarters yeah. nearly, cl- nearly a kilometer long and so then we ended up big. yeah it's very big and we ended up painting geometric lines on the grass on that which was absolutely yeah. huge in scale so that's what we've done. Like practically, we've installed an artwork on the grass. We've painted on different people's houses, used those as canvases. And we've installed an installation, an exhibition in Fabrica. I mean, the public artwork is accessible for everybody. Mm-hmm. There's also plaques that are on the wall, so you can go around and um, a series of pink plaques that all have a line of prose in them, but when you put it together, it forms a poem. So that's kind of about that sort of element of collecting and how we could form like a whole story from different elements or you could just read them on their own and, and read them in relation to that space we and also then, go to online to see the fabrica yeah so the fabrica installation is all in 360 films now and an experience all online yeah so that's an exhibition that's inside fabrica which is um cool. this wonderful kind of art institution in the center of the city that's an old church and um we really wanted to kind of like play with these aspects of of colour and storytelling and have this relationship to what we've done in Walsall and Bevendine. So the idea is that they would feed into one another and that people would 
have this great connection between the two spaces. And so like, right in the middle of creating this work, well, theoretically, what would have been like the final third of creating this work, then lockdown happened. And um, so these two really major things happened. One thing was that the subjects became magnified, so magnified, the subjects of community, the subjects of human connection, joy and storytelling like we're in the middle of this story it's like definitely the story of the year the story decade of our time it's like something that exploded around you know, like i was thought is you know you ever watch a documentary and someone's making a documentary and then something happens in the middle of it and you're like did they know that was going to happen it was it's just so bizarre you kind of think you can't quite believe it in that way and so we felt so strongly about, I mean, this co-commission with Brighton Festival, which was then cancelled because that's such an outdoor and community event. Um, and this was like one of the few things that went ahead because everybody involved felt so strongly, you know, would be about celebrating the sense of community mm. and this community that had not had an art commission like this before. Yeah, it was wonderful. We, you know, just as lockdown was was uh, becoming, uh, what's it? Being put in place. So okay. I think maybe we could go back again. As it was easing easy towards the end. Yeah. We, could, we were allowed to go out uh, with social distancing because we lived together. We were actually cut the scaffolding and stopped painting buildings. We would be out taking their one hour break, you know, walk, and yeah. they'd see us painting and they'd be like, oh my God, what's this? And it'd be like, like oh, it's something colourful and joyful in this in this darkest of dark hours. They're like, oh, it's so nice to see colour and people getting yeah, on Yeah, even things. that simple act of kind of injecting colour into yeah. the space and certainly the act <laughs> so of, many people of somebody yeah. doing something yeah. that was not kind of everything in our lives this wormhole of like, has been locked down. Like so, but there was also this element of every single exhibition that we've had and every single installation that we've made, there's always like a sentence that bubbles to the surface. Lots of different things people will say, but it tends to be just like one thing that you hear repetitively. And that, one when we were installing was we need cheering up yeah. and people so many people said it we need, yeah, cheering, we need up. cheering up and, and uh, more than ever which says a lot when you just think about that sentence because the, the saying we need cheering up acknowledges themselves as a group that doesn't have to be a group of people saying it but acknowledges that you're part of a greater whole and so that to me was like a really powerful thing that idea of like and and the desire to to kind of go with that sentiment of joy and to be taken to be uplifted and so i mean that was really it meant so much to us to be able to mm. continue this during lockdown and we were lucky because the series of portraits that we created for it I mean, it's just too much to explain i feel like we're just yeah. like blah, blah, blah. also <laughs> i think you know you're doing well when uh, white van drivers go beep beep and give you a thumbs up that's pretty much it you know you are, you're, you're doing well I, there are certain things in life where you're like Great, this guy's never been to an art gallery in his life, probably. You know, it's just like, way, you know, amazing. Yeah, I, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm more, I love that. It was funny because when we, uh, when we were painting the houses, then people would say, you know, if they could see what we were doing, they could understand visually what's happening. When we we're painting the grass, every five minutes, someone would stop and go, "Excuse me, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing?" And even that, that turned into sort of part of the installation in a weird way of explaining and kind of telling. And one of the one of the grasses that we painted was a, we painted like a runway because this amazing emergency landing had taken place there that had been flagged down by some locals who saved the pilots. 
And one of them, we changed the original design to paint it like it's like almost like a graph going up and down. But it's a series of walkways that's in as a rainbow because just this like simple. They're all two meters apart. Yeah, I mean that was just kind of conceptually embodying how we felt about this current moment. Mm. This kind of two meter distance and and the rainbow and how some some a symbol that's so sort of heavily lodged in our minds could change over a matter of weeks and months, like. And then, um, and then the final one is uh, a series of circles. So it's like osmosis. And so that was about how the reflection of how we can look and how we can see other people, how we perceive other people in different contexts. And so certain colours of circles were next to other colours and they, they look different in those different contexts. So, but they just look pretty too. Yeah. And <laughs> also, I think very, very was that the, um, yeah, what was very, very nice was that the people who, partook and gave us their houses or buildings to paint on um, all had the option just to have them kind of painted back a different color but what 90 percent all of them are part of one house is is um is uh, is keeping the paint so yeah. they're all gonna be there they'll be next year and the following year so actually uh we decided like if we're going to get funding we're going to go back every year and paint a few more houses yeah. until this entire neighborhood is just multicolored and it'll that go from is the- incredible such a simple thing to well, do you know i think we love it there yeah. we do look literally we within feel 10 very years you can change the entire neighborhood's entire existence it won't be seen as oh that area people will go to brighton to visit that area how yeah. wonderful a gift would that be you know it'll be fun anyone love you want to come yeah volunteers meeting for next summer <laughs> <laughs> that so that brings me on quite well to the area that you would like to improve on yes so chat to me a little bit about something you want to prioritise more or something you are making a huge priority. priority. Um, I like a priority. Everyone a likes priority. it. I feel like there's a good, an eye in anything, like the eye in your, in your face, not the eye as in me. Um, so I think uh, something that we would like to improve on certainly is something that we do already, but we kind of get to a bit of a logjam with it. And that is like we're saying now we a lot of our work has these stories behind them and a lot of our um installations has this kind of like active physical element to them and during that time we talk to so many people and it's it's wonderful for us and it always is this kind of wonderful connection and people always want us to tell them the stories sometimes I feel like I'm just telling people bedtime stories <laughs> um, <laughs> Literally, I just stay up in that Miami bars or once until like four in the morning telling people stories. You hear someone just be overhearing it and they'd be like, Can you tell me now? What's those people have moved out of the way? They were like, Okay, are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> so that is something that we would like to prioritize and focus on improving is being able to reach more people with that same degree of energy in that way and making a that sense of connection and so for us that's definitely something that we're looking to prioritize I think now and to kind of and to focus on sort of expanding that to I mean connection connectivity is like the essence of our artwork that sense of connectedness between us and others and well really between others and and art and that's kind of like I think it's like a sort of relay like we feel connected through inspiration we create art that we're connected to and then that connects other people to their inspiration. And that's kind of like that passing it on. And, um, and so part of that tends to be us telling these stories. And I think, so that is our, that's our next thing to prioritise, I think. Yeah, improve on, I think, yeah. 
I think make make it more accessible to you know uh, little video clips and things like that. More yeah, just ways that and, we can make that more yeah, accessible. connecting with people. And nowadays, I think this thing this time has taught us is that we have to connect other people through other mediums now through uh, through technology such as this. Technology, technology, through technology, through computing. <laughs> For the power of computing. I have a question. Through this connection, are we going to get little videos of Sonyel's bedtime stories? Yeah, basically. Oh my goodness! You <laughs> once, heard it first here. Once upon a time, there was a Buddhist nun and a science student, and they met, and they made love, and then they made art. It's <laughs> art for the bedtime story version. <laughs> yes. You want me to tell a bedtime story, Lily? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Let me pretty know. much. Yes, I will tell you a story. <laughs> that, that sounded kind of ominous, Sonia. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Sorry, absolutely. I'll tell you a bedtime story. I will tell you a story. All right, finally. I love this. Yeah. What, what's something that you don't prioritise? Um, this, Lily, we have noted to be a trick question. <laughs> no. So we give absolutely zero time to things that we don't prioritise. All of our being, all of our art, everything we do is focusing. I think focus is creation. And what we focus on is feeding those creations. So from our perspective, we just don't give any time to anything that we don't prioritise to the point of not even being able to answer your question. (laughs) So, no comment. We live in a little <laughs> bubble of our own creation, and it's wonderful. Everybody lives in a bubble of their own creation, but it depends what you want to feed, isn't yeah. it? And so that, I think, is really important. So it's a very important question in that respect, because, yeah, if you genuinely don't want to prioritise something, yeah. then just don't even talk about it. Try, like, you know, some things, it's easy to think, oh, if you don't think about something and it's hard not to think about something, think about something else. That's the trick. Yeah, there's too much information in the world now, perhaps. I think, you know, I think if people just focused on what they were doing and created this, this smaller bubble around themselves, they'd be a lot happier. Well, that just brings us back to having fun and moment, yeah. doesn't it? It's like focus on what focus what on brings, what's important to what you. What brings you happiness? We've turned into preachers now. Focus on what is mm. important to you. Um, but it's true. I mean, it's important to live like that. It's easy to go, oh, I don't talk about this. And before you know it, you're like you're talking spending about half it. an hour talking about something that you're not technically prioritizing. Um, so your time, the things that come out of our mouths, so that's important. That's, you know, we're walking into that. You say it, you're walking straight forward into it. And, and celebrate so, or ignore. Oh, oh yes. my God. Amazing. Yes, oh, yes, 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 yes. Thank oh, you. Celebrate or ignore. Oh, do you know that was 10 years ago? I nearly, well, I, I am actually going to remind everybody who was part of that. So we did once start a magazine, didn't we? There was also an artist. <gasps> She's uh, like, we did. Like, we, <laughs> we did. Like, it was we amazing. Did. I love the parties, I love the photo shoots, I love all of it. I love a big warehouse that's now members club and a hotel. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, that like, place has changed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we did once upon and a that, time, that. we started a magazine because we just thought people were talking about stuff that they didn't enjoy. And we didn't understand why people talk about stuff they didn't enjoy. And so our motto was celebrate or ignore, which we took out of Tom Robbins' book when he was talk about the weather which is so bloody british how wonderful <laughs> is that and i think 
going to squeeze this in here, but I do think talking about the weather is the ultimate nuance of understanding the, the, the like inner essence of the British brain, should there be such a thing. Because people from, you know, who don't understand this are always like, oh my God, that's so boring talking about the weather. You can say a lot talking about the weather. If it's a little bit too hot, mm, that means a lot. It's raining. That's great. Or maybe it's not. <laughs> so celebrate or ignore, definitely a motto to live by. Guys, thank you so much. Thank so you. much for being here. It was such a treat. You're the final episode of the season. Dun, dun, dun. You're the final episode. <laughs> <laughs> That yeah. is it. Yeah. You were the final episode. We did it. And we were the first one to get to number 10. <laughs> you were. I was an APA. I might be a 10 again. <laughs> it's raining where Walter is. That might be a good thing. <laughs> Thank you. And for your lovely, lovely podcast. I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. Yeah, and it's lovely. We've, we've seen what you've done throughout lockdown as well and bringing parts of mindfulness to people. And it's always a joy to see your face. Well, Massive. right, right back at you. Right back. At you. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free 60-minute online coaching session to a listener. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to prioritiespodcast at gmail.com. You'll then be added into the ballot for a free one-to-one coaching session with me in which we will help align the priorities of your life. Thank you so much for listening and take care.